biggest thing that I did was I made people aware of the fact that there was a country somewhere down by Australia called New Zealand in the, in the marine field. The first time we went to Europe, the moment you said New Zealand, people would say, where's that? Is it somewhere in Europe? Nowadays, I think more people know where New Zealand is in the marine field than know where Australia is. We've certainly done a hell of a lot more than they've done. Whoever won the Hobart race, they used to have to put a hundred beers on the bar and we had about a hundred pounds left. So we said, you know, the best thing we can do is put this hundred pounds on ourselves. So when we finished the race, we got, we got 1,500 pounds and that was a lot of money. And so we went into Dolan's bar and we put a thousand beers on the bar. All these boats were crowded around me and all we could hear was Peter Montgomery's voice coming from every boat around us. And that brought it to New Zealand. I mean, it was a, that, the one-ton cup in New Zealand that year was every bit as big an event for New Zealand as the America's Cup is today. Chris Bouzade has been called the father of New Zealand international keelboat yachting, who inspired the likes of Sir Peter Blake and Grant Dalton. He was the first non-Australian to win the Sydney Hobart race, first non-European to win the one-ton cup, which in those days sat only behind the America's Cup in terms of importance. And he was part of the New Zealand team that finished 1-2-3 at the Sydney to Hobart race, something that had never been done before and which saw New Zealand claim the Southern Cross Cup. These achievements saw Chris named New Zealand Sportsman of the Year in 1969, and he was also inducted into the New Zealand Sports Hall of Fame, awarded an MBE, and listed as one of New Zealand's Sportsmen of the 20th century. But Chris considers himself more of a businessman than a top yachty, and also ran one of the world's biggest sail-making businesses. It was something he was thrust into early in life, taking over his dad's business with his brother when only a teenager but he recognised the importance of marketing and did a lot of this through his yachting exploits. We traversed a lot of Chris Buzade's career on and off the water in this podcast and the part he played in awakening New Zealand's passion for international yachting. He tells the story of the day he shared the front page with the moon landing, how he won 121 races with his famous yacht Rainbow 2, the impact hosting the 1971 One Ton Cup had on this country, and the embarrassing but scary tale of his worst wipeout ever. Before we crack into this podcast, just an apology about the time between episodes. In the last one, I promised one would drop on August 20, but the internet and MIQ was too unstable to record anything. Hopefully this interview with Chris Bouzade is worth the wait. Joining us on the show now is Chris Bouzade, all the way from Maine in the United States. Welcome. Thanks, Michael. It's fun to fun to be talking to New Zealand. Long time since I've been down there. 
Uh, I'm looking forward to getting back sometime in the future, I hope. Yeah, well, you've got a long association, uh, obviously, having flown under the New Zealand flag. So I've been meaning to get you on for some time because of what you've uh, achieved throughout your career, both on and off the water. Um, it's also good timing because of a major anniversary this year, which we'll, we'll get into a little bit later. Um, but just sort of to, to kick things off, you know, how do you look back on your sailing career? Because you achieved so much as a sailor and paved the way for Kiwi Yachties internationally. Well, I think that uh, I, I was lucky. You know, every, every, there's, always a, there's always a factor of luck in what anybody does in life. And um, I, I built the right boat at the right time. Um, and when we, uh, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd gone into business. My dad had died. My brother and I had decided that we would um, run the business we didn't know too much about it, but we figured we knew enough. And we split our responsibilities. And he was going to pretty much run the administrative side, run the canvas side. And and I was going to be in the sail making. And he was going to look after the dinghies. And I was going to try and keep the business with, that we had with the big, with the keelboats. And that's where we went. I was 19, he was 21. And so, you know, a lot of luck in that to start off with. Um, and then um, I realized that our biggest competitor was this fellow in America called Ted Hood. And so one of the first things that I did is I bought myself an airplane ticket and I flew to uh, America and walked in like a rich kid with a sail plan under my arm into the Hood sail making loft in Marblehead and asked them for a quote for a set of sails and they didn't know who I was and I managed to uh, get get some prices from a really nice fellow called Lee Van Germit and then I said well any chance I could sort of have a look around your loft and he said sure I'd love to show you you know we don't have a lot of people come here from New Zealand and so he took me for a walk around the loft and uh, I uh, took a mental note of quite a lot of little things, and home I came. And that was sort of the the beginning of it. And then when I found out that Ted Hood was going to start a sail loft in New Zealand, uh, I kind of figured the best way to beat him was to get a boat of my own at, with my sails. With sail in those days. We used to be called sails and covers, or as a lot of people called us, sacks and bags. And so we changed the name to uh, Bazade Sails. And uh, I, I built a little boat. Max Carter built it for me in record time and threw a few sails on it and went off and raced it to uh, New Caledonia in the, in, the, uh, in the Numir race. And we won that quite handily. And that was sort of the beginning of it all. So did you see yourself as a sailor first or a sailmaker who, you know, could use a bit of marketing by having a quick boat? Uh, definitely a sailmaker. Sailmaker through and through. I've even got a sail loft down here in my basement of my house in Maine um, and make, my own, make some of my own sails uh, for my little classic yacht that I race up here on the weekends. Uh, but you know, it was, 
it was a catch twenty two. We, we we had to we had to prove that our product was as good or better than his product, and and that's what we did. And after that New Caledonia race, we um, we all sat around and as one does in New Zealand with the I think it used to be the Leopard Tavern in those days, and uh, as a, as a as a bright young 22 or 23 year old, I think, um, I said, well, why don't we go and do the Sydney Hobart race? And everybody thought that was a pretty good idea after a few beers. So uh, off we went and uh, sailed the boat over to Sydney and uh, and raced in the Sydney to Hobart race. And that was kind of the beginning of it all, really, in real in international terms, because we were the first non-Australian yacht ever to win the Hobart race. Yeah, I'm certainly keen to delve into all of these details of some of a lot of the successes that you you've achieved. Um, just sort of looking bigger picture, you know, you've been talked about as the father of New Zealand international keelboat yachting. How do you cope with labels like that? <laughs> it's an it's, you know it's an interesting question. How do I cope with that? You know, one of the greatest things in in stardom, call it whatever you like, being famous, is being first. You know, the first one to do it. You know, I as a kid, I grew up, um, and my dad was a member of the Tongariro Ski Club, and one of the other members there was a fellow called Edmund Hillary, and. We all know who Ed Hillary is now because he was the first man to climb Mount Everest. You know, there's, there's a tremendous uh, amount gets given, attributed to you when you're the first person to do something. And, you know, it's great. I'm not, I'm not knocking it, but it's, uh, that in itself is what creates um, a, a lot of the stardom. A, a lot of people, I mean, I don't know how many times New Zealand's won the one-ton cup. I know I've won it twice. I think New Zealand's probably won it maybe three times more. But who knows who who it was who won them? You know what I mean? Mm. But you've said to have inspired the likes of Sir Peter Blake and Grant Dalton, among others. Did you kind of realise at the time that the, the impact that you were having on, on others? No. No, I don't think so. I mean, I took Blakey, I think, on one of his first sales. Offshore sales, and, um, and 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 Grant and I have known each other ever since he was a kid, and a lot of these guys, Murray Jones, Simon Daubney, all of these guys, they were some of them worked for me as apprentices, some of them sailed with me, um, you know, they all became great sailors in their own right. It's got nothing to do with me. I mean, they're wonderful. They're so much better than I ever was. Look at my son Richard. He's Won the round the world race. He's won the America's Cup. He's the, probably the leading sailmaker of the world today, and uh, and that's you know that's so much more than what I ever did. Do you? What about the impact? I guess on the wider industry. Uh, do you think that the New Zealand marine industry would be quite so well organised or as big as it is right now uh, and well respected without you know some of those early successes? Uh, probably not, um, but you know. Once again, it's it's. I didn't do it. New Zealand did it. Uh, I might have got. Uh, probably the only the biggest thing that I did 
was I made people aware of the fact that there was a country somewhere down by Australia called New Zealand in the in the marine field. Um, and, I mean, I'm, the first time we went to Europe, every the moment you said New Zealand, people would say, where's that? Is it somewhere in Europe? And nowadays, I think more people know where New Zealand is in the marine field than know where Australia is. We've certainly done a hell of a lot more than they've done. So just talk to me, I guess, about that scene uh, in New Zealand in that late 1960s and early 70s. You know, what was it like um, to sort of be involved in that marine, that sailing scene at that time? Well, in the sailing scene, there was an enormous amount of camaraderie. You know, nobody got paid. Um, Everybody had to take time off their jobs. Everybody dubbed in, you know, we'd have a kitty for the food to go to Australia and we'd have a kitty for the food to go to Hobart. Um, And that created an enormous amount of camaraderie, which is a little different today because it's become a little more professional. Um, And so, you know, we it was more than just the yacht race. We were we were there for each other, and we we really you know nowadays I don't of my Sydney the the, the crew that were in the Sydney Hobart race, uh, one of them died a couple a few weeks ago. You know, it's very, it's a very sad thing for me. There's only three of the six of us left, and it's. Uh, it, it, you know, it's tough because we were great mates for our entire life. Today, you go sailing on a boat, there's a lot of people. At best, you get to know everybody's name by the end of it. If you've got a memory like mine, you mightn't. <laughs> Is there one result that really stands out from all of the achievements? Um, that's a good question. Is there one result? You know, probably probably the channel race or maybe the fastnet. You know, we won our class in the fastnet and the fastnet's always had a, has had a special attraction to me because I, I, Rainbow, Rainbow Two's name was put on the fastnet cup in 1969 and... Uh, then, of course, in 79, I was on police car, and that was the class that we won. And once again, I was on the boat. And then um, a, f- a few years ago, I did the fastnet for the last time, I hope, um, on, on, a, on a boat called Karina with Reeves Potts. And we won our class, and it happened to be the same trophy. And when he collected the trophy, he brought it back to the table and he's looking down the names and he says, holy shit, you won this thing 50 years ago. And, you know, that made me realize that what the greatest thing about sailing is we do it for our whole lives. It's not a sport you get into and you get out of. I mean, uh, do I compete like I used to? No, I don't. But I am still sailing two or three times a week. I still race um, as much as I can up here in Maine on my classic Looters 24. Uh, I, I, I'm a part owner of the old Rainbow in Auckland, and I and also I'm still affiliated with Rainbow 2 in Auckland, 
And whenever I'm down there, I sail on those boats. And, you know, I'm getting up there now, but I can still go sailing every day if I want to. Yeah, it's certainly a wonderful part of our sport, and that's one of our slogans uh, is sail for life. And, and you know, it's the thing that we sort of tell kids when they get first, first come along as well is that you can still be doing it um, in your later years. I mean, it's interesting that you talk about those successes um, with the channel and the fast net because I guess the one um, race or, or event that you're probably the most famous for is the success at the 1969 One Ton Cup. Um, when you became the first New Zealander to win the famous trophy and, in fact, the first non-European to win that famous trophy. And interestingly, that win took up half the front page on the Auckland Star newspaper. Now, the other half was just a, a small thing called the first moon landing. You know, what was it like, I guess, when you heard that you were half the page alongside the moon landing? <laughs> um, well, by the time I heard that, um, uh, we'd probably had quite a lot to drink. <laughs> it probably didn't mean all that much. But, uh, you know, it, it was when I saw the, uh, somebody kept one of the, you know, they used to have those billboards um, on where the guys used to sell the newspapers on the, on, on the street. And when I saw one of those billboards, that's the, the top line was Mazade wins one ton cup and the next line was man walks on the moon. Um, you know, I was very proud to be a New Zealander. Did you feel like you'd taken one small step for Chris Brizade and one giant leap for New Zealand yachting? <laughs> uh, it's a lovely saying, but I probably didn't think that at the time. But, uh, you know, what really made New Zealand yachting, what it is today, is the guys that sailed with me, Roy Dixon and and Alan Warwick and Johnny Woolley and you know all of those guys who sailed with me. But most of all, what really made it was Noel Holmes to start off with, with his article. Every, you know, people would be out waiting for the star to come out to see what Noel had to say about what was going on in Helgoland because we didn't race every day, but he always had something to say. And then, you know, after Noel, we had Alan Sefton and they were always part of our team. They ate with us. They had breakfast with us. They had dinner with us. They talked with us. And so they knew everything we were doing and they were passing that on to the New Zealand public. So we had the whole country behind us, you know, it's not unlike what happens with the America's Cup today. But, you know, it's, it's different today because everybody now talks about money. You know, I think our entire campaign in 1969 probably cost as much as one sale or maybe even just a sale batten uh, for one of these America's Cup boats. Yeah, it's certainly big business, all right. Take you back a year because you went to the 1968 uh, One Ton Cup um, in, in Germany. You took Rainbow Two over there. How did that come about? I mean, why go and contest the One Ton Cup? Um, well, it came about in two ways. One was Roy Dixon and Alan Warwick 
when I got back from winning the Hobart race, came to me and said, have you ever thought about doing a one-ton cup? And I said, yeah, but, you know, it's in Europe. It's a huge amount of money. I can't think about things like that. I've got a young, you know, I just got married. I've got a young family. I've got to buy a house. And they said, well, let's go sit down and talk with Bruce Marler. So we sat down and talked with Bruce Marler, who was then the Commodore of the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron. And Bruce said, you know, let's give it a go. You know, Bruce, I think he passed away last year, but an absolutely marvellous guy, absolutely marvellous guy. And, you know, he said, let's give it a go. So he formed a committee. He had advised all of the members that the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron was not going to pay for us to go, but they were happy to help. And, you know, with a little bit of help from them, we managed to get, um, you know, cheaper air travel. We managed to get the boat shipped there and back. Um, and we managed to have a little committee, only four people on the committee, but they were pretty active. One of them was Arnold Baldwin, who was our manager for both years. Um, Bresson Thompson was another one. Uh, Bruce Marler obviously was there. And um, oh, who was the other one? I'll have to think about that. Plus me. And, uh, you know, we put it together. It was, it was that simple. Um, and uh, but but the the the, the role that um, Roy Dixon, you know, who's still my best friend ever, and Alan Warwick, who passed last year, they, you know, they played a very big part of it. Maybe could you just give listeners a bit of a sense of how prestigious the One Ton Cup was at the time? Uh, at the time, it was the the America's Cup was kind of out there on the stratosphere. Uh, America had always won it. They'd never been beaten. Anybody who tried to win it didn't even come close. So the next step, the next step down, as far as a one design, uh, as far as a, a a competition between clubs and between countries, it it was the One Ton Cup. So it was the sort of number two. Thing. I mean, at the same time, there were things like the Admiral's Cup and th- also other things going on as well. But for that competition of similar boats, uh, the one-ton cup was the number two thing. So was, was there a belief that little old New Zealand could compete on the biggest international stage? No. Why not? I just don't think anybody believed we could do it, uh, other than Bruce Marler and a few others. Um I don't, I, you know, we, we always imagined um, that those people in America and those people in, in Europe were so much better than us. And, you know, we, we very rarely got to, got to meet, got to sail against each other. It wasn't like it is today. Um, you know, we were still writing letters back and forth. We didn't have, we didn't even, I mean, Talax might have existed, but I don't think we ever used it. Um, I think that uh, <laughs> actually uh, telegrams. I, I remember I've still got a I've still got a whole envelope full of telegrams that I got from various people, including Rob Muldoon and a few other people um, when we when we when we won it. But I think what happened is when we went the first time, we realised that 
we were competitive. We were very competitive when there was some wind, um, but we weren't all that good in light air. And uh, so we came back, but we still managed to get second because we had a bit of wind in a couple of the races. And but we came back and said, you know, we got to we got to have a better light air boat. And then we modified Rainbow significantly, um, and made her heavier, and changed the scantlings and did a few things that en- enabled us to put more sail on the boat. And uh, took her back there. Instead of having a heavy air boat, we had a light air boat, and uh, and that's all. It, that's what it took. You know, it takes a little time to. Yeah, a little bit, a little time to learn sometimes. Just give us a sense, I guess, maybe how much you would have, how much time you would have spent on that boat and then training to get ready for this one ton cup. You know, was it almost like a, a full time job? Oh, yeah. We train more than anybody else. It's no different today in New Zealand with everything we do in sport. And in those days, I mean, we were. We, we, both years we were there at least 10 days before the next boat. We were out every day and we were practicing. We were trying new things. You know, we had we had this system that we'd worked out for jibing spinnakers. So we could always out-jibe anybody. And it, today it looks, it looks like something from the ark. But at, at that time we thought it was so goddamn slick because we could – switch poles backwards and forwards without anybody even seeing us do it. And, um, you know, but we had to practice and practice. So we would, you know, we'd be out before the other guys were out of bed and we'd be out long after they came in. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's typifies New Zealand in sport. Did you think you were a good chance to win then in 69? We had no idea. In 69, yes. In 68, we had no idea. So the one-ton cup, just for people out there, is made up of, was made up of five races. There were three inshore races. There was an intermediate race and a longer ocean race, which usually was, uh, oh, I think, around 200 miles or so. Um, and you won in 69 with a race to spear. You know, was it all that training? Was it the boat? What, what was that key to that success that year? Uh, well, it was it was mostly a light air series, and and we had a good light air boat. Uh, Optimist. The, the previous year, the boat that beat us was Optimist, and she was quicker than us in light air. And when we came back, um, we raced. We actually we went to. Uh, uh, the Baltic to travel to uh, Kiel and raced in Kiel uh, against Optimist and beat her. And then we raced in Travamunde up in the Baltic against Optimist again and and lots of other one-tonners. There were a lot of one-tonners in those days and beat them all again. So everybody knew that we were pretty hot this time around and they were all modifying their boats to make them quicker um, but yeah, at sixty nine, we were—I wouldn't say we were confident, but uh, we knew we were—we we, we were in with a good fighting chance. And then, uh, you know, uh, we won the first four races. So uh, <laughs> that's right, with a race to spare, we didn't have to go out there really. 
you did go out there though, didn't you? And uh, by all accounts, you didn't really take much of an active role in that fifth race. What happened? Uh, <laughs> well, firstly, I think I was incapable of steering. So Roy Dixon was uh, was a skipper. <laughs> he steered the boat and he did a wonderful job. We finished second. We didn't do all that bad. <laughs> um, and uh, But... Uh, no, we, we, we had partied pretty hard the night before. Yeah, we, we, you were still well, only 25 at the time. Um, and, you know, some people spend their whole lives trying to win the one-ton cup. What impact did this have on your life at such a young age? Um, you know, not all that much. Firstly, as time's gone on, it's become more important. Um the impact it had, there was there was no money in it. Uh, what did I have to do? I had to get, I mean, this, in 69, we did the Baltic, then we did the One-Ton Cup, then we sailed the boat to England, and we did the Channel Race. We, we did Cow's Week um, and the Channel Race and the Fasten. We won on one them all. And, you know, then I, some people say, why would you sell the boat? I didn't have a choice. I mean, I don't think that uh, that by that point in time, every penny I ever had had gone into that. And not that there was a lot of pennies, but it was for me at the time. And all I had to do was get home and get to work and make some money and, and uh, you know, run the sailmaking company. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's probably a good opportune time to sort of backtrack a little bit actually at this time and sort of delve a little bit more into your background. You mentioned that, um, you know, your, your father died at a young age, but you, he was a, your father, Leo, he was one of the country's top sailmakers. Um, you know, what were things like growing up? I, I read somewhere that you grew up in New Zealand, Australia, Lord Howe Island, Norfolk Island. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My mother was a bit of an auntie mame. We, um, the, dad and mum split up in 1948 or maybe 49 i'm not sure and uh, 48 i think and then um mum decided to move to norfolk island in 19 i'm gonna guess 49 and she bought a guest house over there so we moved to norfolk island and we were there for a couple of years uh had uh, all sorts of fun. I mean, I can still remember. I, I, I really, I'm ac actually wanting to relive some of my, that stuff. And I, I was looking the other day at how the hell can I get to Norfolk Island? And it's not easy. There's no flights out of New Zealand anymore. And there's one flight out of Australia a week. And that's it. We used to, when, when I went, when we went to Norfolk Island, the airstrip was the old, airstrip that was put down by the Americans during the war and there used to be one flight a week from New Zealand on Tuesdays and one flight which was DC-3 and one flight from Australia on Fridays and that was a DC-4 and my brother and I we used to go out and fill a little gallon can full of passion fruit pulp and we would sell it to the captain of the plane for 10 shillings. Um, and that was our pocket money. 
And we used to do that each week when we lived at Norfolk Island. It was quite fun. How much sailing did you do as a youngster? Very little. Um, we used to, uh, we, uh, we had alternate years we would come back to Auckland to spend the Christmas with Dad. And when we spent Christmas with Dad, we would you know, I'll, I'll go away on Rainbow for the Christmas cruise. He bought Rainbow in 1950 and had her until 62. Um, and so we would, we, 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 we kind of grew up as kids on Rainbow during the Christmas period. So what was it something you wanted to do more of? Because it's quite a big leap to then become one of the best yachties in the world. Well, not really. I mean, well, I was into swimming, actually. I was in Australia. I live, we were living in Brisbane, and I was uh, I was very big. I was training for swimming. That was my goal. Um, I didn't stick to it. I wished I had of, but um, and my granddaughter now. A couple of my granddaughters are doing very very well in in swimming. Uh, so uh, maybe that was. I would have done better if I had stuck to that. But uh, um, it wasn't until we moved back to New Zealand. I think Tony came back in 1955 and I came back in 56. And that's when we both got into into real sailing. And I got a P-class, he got a cherub, and, you know, away it went. Mm. Well, you mentioned that your father died when you were quite young. You were 19. I think your brother was 21. So you you immediately inherit this business. Um, you know, what impact, I guess, did that have on you at such a young age? Um, well, it was, it was interesting. A fellow whose name I haven't mentioned, but some, some of the older group in New Zealand will probably remember him, a, a yacht designer and a wonderful man called Bob Stewart. Bob Stewart, um, who was a, designed quite a few of the K-Class and he designed the uh, Stewart 34s and quite a few other boats around Auckland. Bob was a director of sales and covers and a shareholder and another fellow called Jim Frankham, Frankham Transportation, I think it was, was another director. Dad didn't own the whole company. He owned about half of it. And so when he died, they had the big directors meeting to decide what to do. And the decision that they wanted to bring in a manager to run the business. And Bob Stewart stood up and said, I think we should let, give the boys a go. Let's see what the boys can do. And that was a very big move when you think about it, a 21-year-old and a 19-year-old. And... You know, thank, thanks to him, everything everything went from there, and uh, and it worked out good, worked out great for us. But you know, as I said right at the beginning, luck plays a very big part in everything that happens in your life. Did you sort of know what you were doing at nineteen? You know, were you ready to run a business like that? No, nope. I knew that customers came first, and I think that's all I had to know. I knew how to make sales. I had a pretty good idea how to make sales, and we had some pretty good people there. And so, um, you know, I just – and, you know, Dad was a funny character. You know, he was half Lebanese, 
and he was a great guy. And he he said, you know, he used to if he was going out to buy something like a car or something like that, he'd put old clothes on. And if he was going out to sell something like sales, he'd put really nice clothes on. And he always used to say, these things are really important. He said, always make your customers feel special. And he used to have a saying, you know, he'd go up. I, I always remember one of our customers was Sir Keith Parks. And he's a pretty well-known fellow. You know, I think he pretty much ran the Battle of Britain for Churchill. And Sir Keith would come in, when he came in to buy a sale, he would come in dressed to the nines. He'd even have little spats on around his ankles in case he got a snake bite. I don't know that we had too many snakes in New Zealand. And, um, and you know, he would come in and Dad would treat him like royalty. And, you know, he'd say, well, Leo, he said, I, I think, you know, should I be thinking about a new mainsail? And Dad would look at him and say, Sir Keith, they're really turning out good this year. And so he had order a mainsail. And that was, I learned that from my father. And to this day, I still use that saying, they're turning out good this year. <laughs> so do you consider yourself then a, a bit of a natural businessman? Because... Again, doing some research on you, you know, it looked like that within two years you'd captured a large part of the keelboat market. Yeah, we did. We we got we got most of it, um, and that was mostly because they were turning out pretty good. <laughs> but then you talked about the the American um, running hood sail makers uh, who who sort of started to come into town. And from what I can tell, this is what prompted you to build Rainbow 2. You know, what, what's kind of the story about that? Is that Was that a marketing ploy? Yeah, I, I built Rainbow 2 because I wanted to prove that our sales were, were better than hood sales. And um, there was this fellow called Ron Wilkie, and he had a I built a new Sparkman and Stevens boat a little bigger than Rainbow 2. And he used to make winches, and he bought all hood. He bought hood sails for his boat, and so I wanted to go out there and beat him. His boat was a little bigger than Rainbow, but uh, he wasn't all that great a sailor. And uh, so you know, I went out there and I beat him. And so it was it, it was a marketing ploy, and you know when I went to the One Ton Cup the first time. I was racing against Ted Hood, um, and I met him, and I beat him. And then when we went back in 1969, he raced again in a new boat, and uh, we got to know each other pretty well, um, and I beat him. And then the guy he had running his whole operation in New Zealand and Australia, a fellow called Joe Pierce, um, he he died quite quick, quite suddenly at age fifty five, and um, so I called Ted up and I said, Ted, you know, if you're looking for a partner, you you know, come down, let's have a chat. At the uh, at the bold age of about twenty six at that stage, maybe twenty seven, I'm not sure, and he did. He came down and we put a deal together, and that was the beginning of my association with Hood. And uh, 
and uh, you know it worked out pretty well would you consider yourself a fairly confident individual you know you at 25 26 27 you're dealing with some pretty big companies and, and stitching together deals oh i don't know whether i was you know i i think you know young and foolish is probably more more to the point um yeah i mean yeah yeah i was i i was prepared to take pretty much anything on you know i was very very lucky i had a very strong stable brother my brother tony was always there he was my backstop um and he was always there we we never did anything that we both didn't agree to do but um you know for a long time tony was the guy who was holding the fort making things happen um and you know when i was out making shall we say making the bazade name tony was keeping keeping the walls up around the fort and keeping the enemies away so it we were very lucky in that way and you know unfortunately i lost tony about 10 years ago now and it's a big 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 loss because uh, we, we always we were always close and he was a phenomenal partner great brother but a great partner well, you mortgaged your house to build Rainbow 2, and you described her once as an ugly duckling, um, but she was pretty quick, obviously. You talked earlier about how she won her first race, Whangarei to Noumea, then you took her to Australia, which you mentioned, and won the 67 Sydney to Hobart race. Um, you know, you became the first non-Australian to win that famous race. What, what are your memories uh, from that particular event? Um, what are my memories of that? Well, first, I didn't mortgage my house, I sold it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but my memories of the Hobart race were, uh, the, I mean, we were the only boat, I think, that carried a spinnaker down the coast of Tasmania. It was blowing like stink. And I had this little chicken shoot that I'd made. And we broached a few times, but we, were the, we, we carried a spinnaker when no one else had a spinnaker on going down the backside of Tasmania, and that's what won us the race. Uh, but my my fondest memories of the Hobart race is whoever won the Hobart race, they used to have to put 100 beers on the bar at the Dolan's Pub there in, in Hobart. And there was a fellow called Boy Messenger, and he used to run a book on the Hobart race. And... We didn't have very much money. By the time we were ready to start the Hobart race, by the, we'd loaded the boat up with food and we'd spent pretty most of our money and we had about 100 pounds left. So we said, you know, the best thing we can do is put this 100 pounds on ourselves. So we got, Boy gave us, was giving us 15 to 1 odds to win the Hobart race. So we put 100 pounds on Rainbow. So when we finished the race, we got we got fifteen hundred pounds, and that was a lot of money. I can tell you, it was a lot of money. And so we went into Dolan's Bar, and we put a thousand beers on the bar. And it's the first time anybody's ever done that. But since then, I think that it's probably happened a few more times. Uh, and then the, my other fond memory of the Hobart race was when at the prize giving. You know, in in those years, in the in the late sixties, uh, it was, you know, we'd had licensing, we'd had 
import restrictions. We'd had Rob Muldoon. We'd had the whole shooting match. And things weren't all that great in New Zealand. And Australia had been talking about New Zealand becoming their ninth or eighth state, something like that. So when I got up at the prize giving, I, I, I said a few things and being a very cheeky 25 or 24-year-old, whatever I was, and I said, you know, and I just spoke to the Prime Minister of New Zealand and he has agreed that Australia could become our 17th province. Very good. <laughs> and uh, that went down. It, it really went down very, very well when I think about it in, in past tense. So all of the success, did it help the sale-making business? Oh, yeah. yeah it helped. It helped the business in general. We got we got we got recognition. Um, we became hood sale makers, uh, and we you know one thing led to another. Then we took over all the Australian operations, and you know opened up in Japan and started a mask company, and yeah, every, everything grew. It was good. So we, we've talked about Rainbow Two that went on to win, I think, what, 121 races. Um, so, but in 1971, and uh, when New Zealand hosted the One Ton Cup in Auckland, um, you sailed a boat called Waianawa, um, and you were joined in that New Zealand team by Young Nick and Escapade. It didn't exactly go to plan for you, did it? Because uh, I think what well, I was watching some footage the other day of, in, in race two. You led for 148 of the 150 miles before falling into a hole and, and finishing seventh. But even just to um, top off the ignominy of that, you were eventually disqualified from that race. But um, Sid Fisher, who's a well-known name in, in yachting circles, obviously, from Australia, dominated the event like you had in 1969. You know, what was it like for you to take um, you know, not winning on your home territory? I learned a lesson. I learned two lessons. The first lesson was, you know, we, we were the last boat. It was a last-minute effort. Ray Walker came to me and said, let's build a boat. And so it was, the whole thing was a last-minute effort. We were the last boat to go in the water. We didn't have enough tuning. And I was suffering from exactly the same problem that I had with Rainbow the first year. We, we weren't very quick in the light air. Soon as there was a breeze, we were fine, but in the light air, we were slow. Um, and the second thing I learned is you can't do everything at once. I was making a, the the movie, which you may have seen the the, the film that the Na New Zealand National Film Unit made of that event, uh, which was a great movie, a fun movie. Uh, I was helping run the event with the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron, and I was competing in it. And you just you can't do that if you want to win. You've got to have one focus on one thing. So uh, when uh, after that event, you know, uh, we went back to Australia the following year and won the One Ton Cup back by by just focusing on one thing, the One Ton Cup. I guess in that 1971 event, you know, there were massive spectator fleets that came out to watch and it was covered live on radio, I think even by a certain Peter Montgomery who was just starting out. That was the beginning of that was the beginning of PJ. 
Yeah, I did a podcast with him not so long ago, and he talked very um, favorably about those days. You know, what was it like in terms of an event, though? And did it, you know, what did it do for, I guess, New Zealand's love affair with yacht racing? Well, once again, it, you know, with, I mean, I was sitting there when I was coming into the finish in that middle distance race, the, the next boat was out of sight behind me. I was so far in front. And I got becalmed about 100 yards from the finishing line with a foul tide. And Peter Montgomery, this was one of his early events. I mean, he was making it sound like a horse race. And I wasn't moving. I was stuck in one place, not going anywhere. And everybody's, every, I mean, all these boats were crowded around me. Every one of them had their 1ZB or whatever radio station it was turned up at full blast. And all we could hear was Peter Montgomery's voice coming from every boat around us. Um, and, you know, that, you know, brought brought it to New Zealand. I mean, it was a that, that one-ton cup in New Zealand that year was every bit as big an event for New Zealand, as the America's Cup is today. And not a lot of people realise that, but it really was. I mean, the number of boats that came out, the amount of interest, uh, everything else about everything about it, was it was, it was a pretty big deal in New Zealand then. So you might not have won it then. Was there a sense of satisfaction that you'd played a role in, in you know, awakening this interest? Oh, yeah. You know... What, what do you do? You say I'll be back. You know, it's it's in those days. It was uh, was very, you know I was obviously disappointed, but um, uh, Alan Warwick was sailing uh, uh, young Nick, and he did. It. He's the one who threw me out of that race, and it, it was really a an interesting situation. Um, and Gilly Hedges was sailing the other boat, Escapade. They were all good boats. Uh, young Nick and Escapade were the same boat as the boat Sid Fisher was sailing, identical. So either of those two boats should have won, could have won it. Well, later that year, you were part of a New Zealand team that finished one, two, and three at the Sydney to Hobart race, something that had never been done before. And it was um, the final race in the Southern Cross Cup, which New Zealand won for the first time. Um, it was said that when you returned to Auckland, you were received a greeting similar to those for the, the Whitbread fleets in subsequent years. You know, what, what was that like? <laughs> that was pretty interesting. We, uh, 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 As we crossed the finishing line at Oraki Wharf, some, a fellow fell off or joke, jumped off the wharf into the water, so we had to pick him up. So when we went up to clear customs, uh, we had this extra person on board. So we tried to explain to them that he'd fallen off and we'd picked him up. And, you know, of course, in those days you had to go into quarantine and you weren't allowed in until they, until the health inspector came out to the boat. And then they wanted to check to make sure you didn't have any alcohol on board except for, you know, one bottle of scotch or something. And, um, and so we got this extra guy on board. And the, and the quarantine guy came on board and saw who it was. And he said, well, that's fine. It doesn't really matter. 
We've cleared him in already. He'd finished on one of the larger boats. It was one of the crew on one of the larger boats that finished about three hours ahead of us. So uh, it was, uh, it, that was pretty amazing. But it, it, it was a great... It was a great reception. It was a wonderful. The biggest, the biggest reception of all that I've ever had and didn't expect was when we came back from the Sydney to Hobart race. Um, when we were coming in, because it was a race back, and when we were coming into the harbour, we could see all these lights and we had no idea what it was. And, you know, once again, the finish was at Oraki Wharf. And the entire waterfront and all the way up to Mickey Sav Memorial, the whole thing was just thousands of people. And we, we that was when, I guess, it struck home to me that we had really done something that meant a lot to New Zealand. Yeah. We talk about the, the firsts, isn't it, that, uh, achieving firsts along the way. Well, you achieved a, a second uh, victory in the One Ton Cup in Australia in 1972 with Waianawa, um, which you mentioned previously. So what did you do to modify the boat this time? And, or was it the crew? Or what, what did you do that was different? Uh, pretty much the same as what I did to Rainbow. <laughs> um, we increased the ballast. We changed the trim. Um we put a slightly longer mast in. We added sail area. And um, she was an odd boat. She had a, We had a turning keel. The boat had one keel bolt, and you could turn the whole keel. And it wasn't a good idea. So we and, – and it cost us a little bit of it, – it was a penalty for having that. So we blocked the keel so we couldn't turn it. Um, we increased the stability of the boat. We added sail and went back and managed to win it. We, we were, it was marginal. We, I mean, there was a new boat there um, that Hans Belkin was sailing, a new Dick Carter boat, which was very quick. Uh, but they broke their head stay in, in one of the races, which put them out of it. Um, otherwise, they probably would have won that. You know, if I'm if I'm honest, they were. I think uh, the, the, it was it was a very good boat, but uh, uh, but you know, that's the way it goes. So, having achieved all of the success at such an early time, what other ambitions did you have as a sailor? You know, what about something like the America's Cup? Um, not really. I mean, I never saw the America's Cup as something that was going to happen for New Zealand in those days. And, you know, my, I, my ambition was to try and make ends meet. You know, th things weren't great in New Zealand in the 70s, early 70s. And, um, and I was working hard, as was my brother. We were both working and we're trying to build the business. And, you know, we were, we're increasing our turnover, but the bottom line didn't seem to be growing very quickly. And... Um, you know, and then we got involved with the Hood organization, and uh, you know, it was it was really uh, less, a lot less sailing and a lot more business, a lot more work. And then I moved to Sydney uh, to run the Australian operation, 
And then I got asked um, by a group of investors who had bought hood sale makers in America if I would come to America and run the run the overall world operation. And that's how it all happened. So it meant that you took more of a backward step, I guess, in terms of sailing. Um, you still had some successes, wasn't it? There was 90, 1975, you led the New Zealand Admirals Cup team. 1979, you won the Fastnet race. Unfortunately, that was a race uh, marred by the death of 13 people. Um, but, you know, how much time were you spending on a, on a boat and how much time was it more in the boardroom? Um, well, by then... I was just sailing other people's boats. It had reached the point where I was no longer owning my own boat and racing my own boat. I was jumping on board other people's boats. The, the, the game was changing. People were starting to get paid to sail. Not that I ever got paid, um, but people were getting paid to sail and it was starting to move in into a more professional arena. And I think that, you know, I was... I was on police car in 1979. Uh, you know, why was I there? Because we'd made all the sales for the boat. Um, one of the commitments we made to the owner was that I would do the uh, the Admiral's Cup on the boat. So is that when you moved to the US? Was that in 1981? No, I moved to the US in 79. Okay. So what, if, and you've lived there ever since effectively? Yep, pretty much. So what involvement did you still have with New Zealand yachting uh, from that time? Not a lot. Um, you know, I, got, I, I became more involved in American yachting. And, you know, we, we sold. I, I ran Hood Sailmakers and all the other Hood affiliates and that for about four years, maybe, four or five years. And then I guess I came to America in 78, come to think of it. And... Then um, and then I got involved. I got asked to be part of the America to America's Cup Challenge in Perth, and I uh, I, I had we, we had sold Hood Sailmakers to a guy in France, and he and I didn't see we didn't see eye to eye, so there was no point in my staying there. And then I got asked to do the. Um, America's Cup, so I jumped at that opportunity to do that for the United States for for the America Two, which was the New York Yacht Club Challenge. Did you enjoy that kind of management role as part of a sailing team? Uh, no, <laughs> it was uh, far too political. Um, nobody knew who was. Uh, uh, you never knew who was up who and who was paying. It was. Uh, there were just too many bosses and not enough Indians, and it it, uh, it was very difficult. Um, and I was after I'd been with them for I don't know maybe two years, a year and a half, because it went on for quite a long time. Um, that was when Michael Fay had come onto the scene, and New Zealand was starting to put their program together, and they approached me. Um, and I actually I had a meeting with Michael and David Rishwite to talk about joining the New Zealand effort. And you've got no idea how much I wanted to do it. Um, and, we, you know, we talked long and hard about it. But I couldn't bring myself 
to walk out of one campaign and go join another. It just felt like being, you know, being a trader. I don't know how you'd put it. I just, I just didn't feel it was the right thing to do. Um, and I, it, I mean, it was probably the right decision. I don't know. It was. I would have loved to have been part of that the New Zealand effort in Perth because it went, it went on from there. And then that was obviously the start of, of New Zealand's love affair with the America's Cup, which I guess for you was something that wasn't really achievable, um, you know, 15, 20 years earlier, was it? No, absolutely not. So, you know, was it something that maybe you were interested in doing along the line after that sort of early interest from Team New Zealand? Um, you mean after that America's Cup? Mm. Um, no, to be really honest, I'd had a guts for. I just, the politics, the way it all went, I, uh, I had a, a 50 foot, a very nice 50 foot sailboat. And I jumped on board that after the America's Cup. Um, we'd, I'd, I'd been building a, a, a large com- a commercial building in, in Rhode Island. Uh, we completed that, got that leased. Uh, jumped aboard my 50-foot yacht with my wife and daughter and took off and spent five years sailing around the world. Yeah, that's incredible, isn't it? Where, where did you get to? You know, what were those experiences like? Oh, that's another whole story. <laughs> they were marvellous, absolutely wonderful. I mean, we had the most spectacular time. We went places where yachts didn't go. Um, we went... Uh, we went. Um, we were just. It was. It was spectacular. It was. It was an amazing experience, and uh, and and I recommend it to any any young couple who can get if they can do it, just to get away. And I mean, I'm. It's so different today. I was down in the Caribbean the year before last, and I've been going to the Caribbean now for I don't know, forty years probably. And it's so different. It is so different. I mean, just one little story. There's a little bay at the bottom of St. Lucia uh, called the Piton, between two very high mountains. And it's a very deep volcanic crater. And you anchor and you put an anchor over and you take a line to the beach. And there used to be an elephant called Bupa who used to wander up and down the shore. And so you could go ashore and you'd go get a bunch of bananas or something and feed Booper. And so you always went there to see Booper. And, you know, you'd usually be the only boat there. Might be one other boat, one other yacht if you're lucky. Today, there are three big hotels, no Booper, no beach, and you've got to pay to go there. You know, it's, it's, it's really, it's so different how much you know i don't know they call it progress i'm not sure i'm not sure where this fits in but in 2009 you were in bermuda and found rainbow 2 in a state of disrepair just to recap rainbow 2 was obviously the boat that you achieved such success with in 69 what was the story there and what happened next um well i was with a friend with two friends, P- 
Pete Worrell and Ford Reiki. And I said, you know, Rainbow Two's here. And they said, we've got to go see it. So I found out where she was and she was in terrible shape, terrible shape. She, she'd always she'd always leaked quite badly around the mast step. And over the years, different people had tried to fix her. But she was at the point where um, she'd probably <clears throat> be put under a bulldozer or taken out to sea and sunk. And they said, you know, let's buy it. Let's buy it and take it back to New Zealand. This is part of New Zealand's history. So these two American friends of mine said, you know, how much can you buy it for? And I said, I don't know. Whatever the number was, it wasn't very much. <clears throat> they said, well, well, we'll give you the money to buy it, you know. And then I, talk, I was with Peter Corns, another wonderful new Kiwi, and I was with Peter Corns, and I said to Pete, well, this is the story. And he said, well, I'll pay to ship it back to New Zealand. So now we had bought Rainbow and we shipped it to New Jersey and then on back to New Zealand. And then I got together with John Street and the Classic Yacht Association and we raised some more money and completely rebuilt the boat. I mean, she had to be almost completely rebuilt. And, um, and she came out looking pretty good. And uh, then we decided to have that one-ton re revision regatta, and it—I uh, don't know if you know much about that—but we had about six or seven of the old one-tonners racing, um, including Wayanawa, and including um, boats like a Young Nick, and including some of the later far boats and the old rainbow was pretty damn fast we beat them all boat for boat in some of the races and won the regatta uh, quite comfortably so she was a quick little boat she was a great boat Did that that um one ton of revision that you're talking about regatta was 2016 did you get back for that yeah yeah i, I sailed the boat so what was it like to sail the old girl again? You know, did it conjure up memories of 69? A little bit. I mean, I realised how nice a boat she was. And funnily enough, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of tacking a little bit here, but last weekend I did a regatta here in Maine and I was racing against a boat called the Hawk in my little looters. And the Hawk was one of the boats that did both one-ton cups in Helgoland, 69 and 68. And we beat her handsomely. We never saw the thing we other than on the starting line. And uh, racing my looters last weekend, she beat me. <laughs> and I said, you know, I better go get Rainbow and bring Rainbow over here because I know she'll beat the Hawk. <laughs> What have you sort of made, I guess, of the direction that sailing's gone? You know, it's, it's quite a different world to those days of the one-tonners and, and, and um, a lot of the boats that you were sailing. You know, we're, we're talking about foiling in America's Cup these days. Oh, I think it's great. I think everything that's happening is wonderful. I mean, the faster they go, the, the more exciting it gets. It's become very professional. Um, I don't – I mean – I stay up all night to watch an America's Cup race or the uh, the GP50 catamarans. 
Um, I think everything about these boats is as, is every bit as exciting as watching the old 12 meters or getting out and sailing my, my looters, you know, which is like a six meter. Um, sailing, it's just, it's just a great sport. I mean, can an 80 year old go foiling? Probably not, but he can go sailing on a looters 24. <laughs> you know, my looters, I say, it's, you say looters 24, it's, it's actually 38 feet long. Uh, it's roughly the same size as Rainbow, but as Rainbow 2. But uh, it's, uh, you know, it's horses for courses. And for the professionals, these foiling boats and that, they're absolutely great. I'm sure you would have been able to make a, a pretty good sale for them as well. Yeah. And I'm very proud of my son, Richard. You know, he's part of the the Doyle sales operation down there and in Auckland. And uh, it's, uh, um, they've done a phenomenal job. He was, uh, I know he was one of the sale makers for the, for the American challenge this last time. And, and he's been very, they're very involved with lots of different boats. And, you know, it's, that's what bothers me so much about what's happening in New Zealand today. Um, Shutting down the industry. It's, it's going to kill these companies. They're going to hurt. They they can't not, and uh, I just I mean it's I understand that some people think New Zealand's done the right thing, you know if I if somebody asked me my opinion and you haven't, um, they did everything right to start off with, and everything wrong after that, because if they had have got New Zealand vaccinated, and let's face it in India they vaccinate more people a day than the population of New Zealand. When you think about something like that, more people a day than the population of New Zealand. If New Zealand had have gotten self-vaccinated early, it would be on top of the world right now. And instead, look what's happening. It's pretty sad. I think that's a whole podcast in itself, isn't it? But um, it's certainly great to hear that you're still sailing. You know, what, what else are you up to these days and what, and what plans do you have for the future? <laughs> well, you know, I'm getting up there. <laughs> I've been doing this for a long time. I still sail as much as I can. Um, my wife Lydia and I have a powerboat that we cruise in. Uh, I'm involved in a in a little company here. Uh, we started about six years ago called Sea Bags, and we make all different sorts of bags out of old sails. Um, it's uh, we've got 300 employees. Uh, we've got uh, I think 38 stores around the country, and two manufacturing facilities here in Maine. We make everything in Maine, um, and everything's everything's we as we call it upcycled. Uh, we've up, upcycling sales, and so that keeps me pretty busy. Um, I'm involved in a couple of other companies that I'm on the board on the board of, and uh, you know, just try to stay busy. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll see you back down these waters at some stage um, soon enough. I um, certainly hope so. Yeah, well, it's been it's fantastic to catch up. Um, just before I let you go, though, um, there's got to be another good story in there with your worst wipeout ever. Wipeouts, probably my best wipeout of all, 
was when I fell overboard in the Mediterranean in the One Ton Cup in 1973. Um, I fell overboard in the middle of the night uh, when we were going downwind with a blooper and a mainsail, a blooper and a spinnaker and no mainsail. Um, that was a pretty serious wipeout. How did that happen? The same way it happens to most people. <laughs> the lifelines broke while I was taking a pee over the side. <laughs> And uh, and we had no we had no lights we had no batteries. Um, they uh, who was Mike Spanik was on watch with me, and he 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 blew the halyards on the spinnaker and the blooper, and that kind of stopped the boat. And they kept screaming, and I kept screaming, and I kicked all my clothes off, and and swam dead downwind and and Johnny Woolley had a little flashlight and I could see the light and I kept swimming for the light and got back to the boat. Was that a scary moment for you, particularly in the middle of the oh, night? You better believe it. Everything in my life went through my mind. How long would you have been in the water for? I don't know, maybe 20 minutes. It wasn't all that long. It was long enough. Long enough to think, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's amazing. You know, you're trying to survive, you're going like crazy, and your mind is doing a million miles an hour. And how did you end up in that race? Second. <laughs> I screamed. I When I got back on board the boat, I started yelling about getting the sails up and getting going. And, and in fact, when I was in the water, um, I remember vividly, because behind us, not all that far behind us was Ted Hood on his new Robin and Ted Turner in a boat called Lightning. And they went past me, either side of me. I saw the red light and I saw the green light. And I, I was yelling at the top of my voice and neither of them heard me. Well, they say they didn't. And, um, and it was... Uh, it was many years later that I was uh, I was actually down in South Carolina with Ted Turner on one of his plantations, and we relived the moment. And he said, "You know, I might have heard something." <laughs> Thanks for checking it out, Ted. Yeah, you didn't lose that race by twenty minutes, did you? Uh, no, I don't know. Uh, the boat, I think Gambari won it, but she was disqualified. And um, who was second? Oh, Hans Belkin was sailing a boat called Idra. He was set, he was the next boat, and we were third. Yeah, so I think it was quite close in the end. I forgot. But you know, the ocean race. You talked about the ocean race earlier, being two hundred miles. The ocean, the long race, was about three hundred and fifty miles in those days. In those little boats, it used to take about three days, three or four days, um, and the intermediate race was two hundred miles. So, what was the lesson of that? Don't pee off the back of the boat. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's not the only time that's happened to me, but that was the worst time. Well, thank you so much, Chris. I've really enjoyed the last uh, sixty, seventy-five minutes or so. Really appreciate your time, uh, particularly coming uh, in from Maine. Um, we really hope we can see you down here again at some stage. Um, so all the best and, and thanks again. Yeah, I'm looking forward to coming down and 
Sailing on the Rainbows, both of them. You know, one of the great things that I loved was for the 150th for the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron, they made four stamps and two of the stamps, one was Rainbow, the first Rainbow, and the other, and another stamp was Rainbow 2. And then they had Steinlager and uh, the America's Cup boat. I thought that was great. Well, it just shows the impact that you made, wasn't it? I guess. Yeah. It was all good fun. Well, that's it for another episode of Broadreach Radio. Thanks for tuning in. If you've got this far, hopefully it means you've enjoyed it. So please give us a like or share the episode. It's the fastest way to grow the podcast. And perhaps you might want to dive into the back catalogue. It's an opportune time to catch up on some of the previous ones, especially with New Zealand in lockdown right now. If you've got any feedback or suggestions on who you'd like me to interview, drop me a line at michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz. Otherwise, I'll be back in a fortnight with the next podcast. Take care.